Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome to the London School of Economics and this event on trust, the key to social cohesion. My name is Jean-Paul Figuier. I'm Professor of the Political Economy of Development in the Department of International Development here at the LSE and also a research associate of the Latin America Center, which is co-hosting this along with the LSE Inequalities Institute. And I'm very pleased to introduce to you our main speaker and then two discussants. Phil Kiefer is Principal Economic Advisor in the Institutions for Development sector of the Inter-American Development Bank. Before this, he served as a lead research economist in the Development Research Group at the World Bank. He's worked on a broad range of countries from Bangladesh, Benin, and Brazil to Indonesia, Peru, and Pakistan, amongst many others, largely on questions of political incentives and economic development. His research has appeared in some of the top journals in the world, including, for example, the Quarterly Journal of Economics, as well as in political science, the American Political Science Review, which, let me tell you, is not an easy thing to do. He holds a PhD in economics from Washington University in St. Louis. Um, before turning it over to Phil, um, let me introduce our two discussants. Aaron McPhee is a UKRI Future Leaders Fellow leading the project Trust After Betrayal, Global Development Interventions in the Shadow of Organized Violence at the LSE's Latin America Center. She has a PhD in Human Development from the University of Chicago. And last but not least, Aldo Madariaga is Professor at the School of Political Science at Diego Portales University in Chile, where he's also Associate Researcher at the Center for Social Conflict and Cohesion Studies. And he's the author of the award-winning 2020 book, Neoliberal Resilience, Lessons in Democracy and Development from Latin America and Eastern Europe. So welcome to all of you. Welcome to, to everyone who's here in the audience. We're very excited about this event today. I've asked Phil to speak for about 45 minutes, and then our discussants will each speak for around seven minutes, and then we'll open it up to, to questions and discussion from the floor. So thanks to all, and Phil, please, the floor is yours. Thanks so much, Jean-Paul. Thanks to LSE also for, for, inviting, for inviting us to, to present this flagship document uh, of the IDB. Every year, the IDB does a, has a flagship document, sort of like the World Development Report of the World Bank. And this year's um, authors are Carlos Cafasini and I, and we're really happy with the book and happy for the opportunity to share it, to share it with you. Um, and you can see it, so that's great. The, the, so one, one issue is why we're writing this book, and there's two answers. One is that it's super pertinent in Latin America. So even before the pandemic, there was a lot of social unrest in the region. Since the pandemic, there's social unrest, and many people have talked about that unrest being linked to feelings of mistrust, for example. Uh, usually mistrust towards governments, but we would like to argue that there are deeper issues than that. And why would the an, an international development agency write about trust? We're not usually thought of as being in the business of building trust. Um, we're not usually in the business of, uh, seen as being in the business of sort of addressing social movements. Uh, but in fact, what we what we'd like to argue in the book and what the literature really tells us as well is the trust is intimately related to all also to the traditional goals of development agencies, in, in particular, to economic development. So if you think about specifics like the productivity of small and medium-sized enterprises or the degree of informality and formality or the quantity of investment in a country, 
the speed of innovation, uh, participation in global value chains, all of those things are entirely tied up with different elements of trust, in addition to the kind of political phenomena that we observe. Of course, that leads us to a big question, which we had big discussions uh, about with our colleagues right at the beginning of this project, which is what do we mean by trust? We settled on a definition that we think has strong theoretical backing, and that also seems to move uh, conveniently and, and plausibly from context to context where we think trust matters. So the definition we have for trust is it's the belief that others will not act opportunistically towards us. So what does that mean? It means that others who are people, firms, governments, they don't do the following. They don't make promises they cannot keep. They don't renege on promises that they can keep. And they don't violate norms, social norms, to take advantage of those people who, do, who actually respect them. So with that definition in mind, how do we think about the issue of trust and development? So this is kind of the structure of the argument that we, that we present in the book. Our ultimate goal as a development agency is inclusive growth. We want you know, accelerated, faster growth that benefits everyone, that lifts all boats. And trust affects that in two different ways. One is the direct path, which, uh, which we need, we've seen a lot of in the literature. This is not a, a new idea. From Ronald Coase to Francis Fukuyama to Douglas North, all of these people have argued for the importance of trust for economic activity. Because if you think of any economic uh, activity, any economic exchange, it typically involves one party to rely on the assurances of another party. It could be credit, it could be the sale of a car, it could be investment, anything, it, it tends to require trust. And in the absence of trust, economic actors, people, firms, they have to take costly action to get over that trust barrier in order for the transaction to be consummated and for economic growth to proceed. But there's also an indirect route through which trust matters for growth. And we really highlight that in the book, and it's less often talked about. If you think about what else we need for growth besides trust, you, your mind immediately goes to the institutional environment of a country, to the public goods that a country provides that lay the groundwork for growth, public goods like ports or roads, um, transportation networks, anything that you can think of that supports economic activity, but also institutions like protection of property rights, protection of contract rights, the even and just application of regulations that are efficient um, for, uh, for, the smooth, for the smooth functioning of a society and an economy. All of those things don't come from nowhere. They're the product of collective action of citizens. These are the product of citizens, perhaps working through their governments, but ultimately it requires collective, the collective action of citizens to achieve these public goods and strong institutions. But what does that mean, the collective action of citizens? It means that every citizen needs to be sort of predisposed to make a small sacrifice or a larger sacrifice if it comes to paying taxes, that, that if everybody makes the sacrifice, will make everyone much better off than they would otherwise be. So that's the very essence of collective action. It requires citizenship. It requires the disposition of citizens to make these small sacrifices. And when are they going to do that? That's where trust comes in. They're much less likely to do that if they don't trust each other. So trust in other citizens uh, is, the, is a big determinant of whether I will make these small sacrifices that will allow the manufacture of public goods, that will allow the maintenance of strong institutions. Because if I don't trust other citizens, it means I expect that they're going to free ride on my contributions. And so I'm going to make a contribution. No one else will. 
the public good will not be provided, the strong institutions will not survive, uh, and so uh, and so that's a that's a bad equilibrium. So that's the indirect way in which uh, in which trust influences inclusive growth. So you can we have a lot of data. Uh, this is well known data actually. It's not just in this book about the situation of trust in the region and in the world. So the first message is. Everyone should be paying attention to this book, not just people interested in Latin America, because if you look at the bars for the rest of the world or for the OECD, you see trust is a problem everywhere. One out of five people in the world trust others. So this, the question here is interpersonal trust. How much do you trust other people in your, in your community, in your society? So in the whole world uh, that's not Latin America, the number is one out of five. In the OECD, so the richest countries of the world, the answer is two out of five. And in Latin America, unfortunately, the answer is one out of 10. So Latin America has a severe problem with trust, but the whole world has a problem with trust. And there's lessons in this book really for, for the whole world. This is not a new problem uh, anywhere. It's definitely not a new problem in Latin America. It's not like the pandemic caused a, a drop in trust. It's not like some recent political changes caused a loss, uh, a loss of trust. It's not like the emergence of social media has caused a loss, a loss of trust. Latin America has been persistently low in trust measures since trust measures began to be collected back in the early 1980s. Although the countries that are covered are, are varying because in the beginning there weren't that many countries, the general idea is trust has pretty much always been low, uh, low compared to the rest of the world. And also, uh, differently than the rest of the world, there's been more evidence of decline, if not a dramatic decline in Latin America over the last couple of decades compared to the rest of the world, which seems relatively stable or possibly in some circumstances, even increasing. We don't really have an explanation for these movements over time. What really concerns us is sort of these persistent low levels. So the phenomenon extends to government. This is a different kind of question. So the scale is different, but again, we see a problem in the whole world. So the rest of the world that's not Latin America, only one out of two people trust their government. In the OECD, it's two out of five people trust their government. Three out of five people do not. In Latin America, it's about one out of three people trust their government and two out of three do not. So that has big implications that we go to a lot of effort to explore for the quality of public policy, for the public goods that countries have, um, and for just the nature of, of society in general. So why is it the trust is low? We don't there's not, it's a very difficult question to answer, and we do not answer it in the book, but there's a lot of interesting theory and a lot of interesting studies that bear on the issue. So we can't conclusively say, what is the problem with Latin America and why does it exist? But we can say that some things are bound to be important and we need to investigate those in the future. And we need to investigate those as potential public policy responses to the problem of trust. So if you think about our definition of trust, which is the fear of opportunistic behavior by others, we can ask, when does that fear, when is that fear highest? When is the fear greatest that others will take advantage of us? Well, one is when we're, is the presence of information asymmetries, when they know a lot more than we do about key circumstances. So a government knows a lot more about whether a bad economic outcome is, the ca is caused by an economic shock or whether it's caused by the government taking advantage of people and taking rants and making bad decisions. It, the people don't know that, so they're, they're not informed. There's an information asymmetry there. So they assume that the government will take advantage of them, and therefore they assume that in, in a low-trust environment, they will, they will 
when, when this information asymmetry exists, they will assume that a bad outcome is a government taking advantage of them with bad public policies. Uh, they, they won't because they know that would be the incentive of the government to do. So in the presence of asymmetric information, trust falls. And it's, but it's not only a political question. If you think of the famous paper by George Akerlof about lemons, this is in the used car market, it's, it permeates the, the world of, uh, of commerce as well. So someone wants to sell you a used car, they know a lot more about the quality of that used car than you do. You will presume that they will tell you the car is in great shape when it's not. And so you will be prepared to pay less than whatever they ask for it because you assume whatever they're asking is overstating the quality of the car. So once again, information asymmetries lead to mistrust and, and lower transactions or worse economic and political outcomes. But what if you're completely informed? Even in a world in which everyone is informed about everything, there's no information asymmetry, we still have a problem of power asymmetries. Because what if someone takes advantage of you? You know they're taking advantage of you, but you can't do anything about it. You have no recourse. So in the absence of recourse, there's a power asymmetry. And again, there's mistrust because you know that unreliable behavior, unopportunistic behavior will not be punished even if everyone is adequately informed about it. And there's big literatures around both of these issues, around information asymmetries and around power asymmetries. These are all important, many important contributions have been made. The novelty in the book is to put these two things together, to provide guidance for policymaking and sort of to make sense of the trust problems around the world and in the region. So that's the proximate causes. So if you see mistrust, it has to be related, we assert, to either information asymmetries or power asymmetries. Something's going on there and that's causing mistrust. That's the proximate cause. But where do those asymmetries come from? Uh, that's where things get quite murky. So there's very many, there's not many, but there's, there's some fascinating studies out there that give us clues. So there's studies that link experience, um, you know, sort of terrible historical experiences related to colonialism or slavery and forced labor to, or violent conflict to inequalities in the distribution of power, and that these yield a legacy of, dist, uh, of mistrust. So how do they yield that legacy? Let's assume that's, I mean, we know there's some really persuasive studies about certain areas and certain periods of time where this seems to have been the case. And some of those studies are in, in Latin America. So the question is, how is it that those events from 200 years ago or 300 years ago persist until today? And again, there's very interesting research that gives us some clues. Uh, one is that they may be embodied in institutions that are difficult to change. The people who, through these historically terrible events, achieved power, set up institutions that made it very difficult for, for them to be removed from power. Another is behavioral and cognitive biases that can persist. So they also set up the education systems, for example, and those education systems can persistently lead to cognitive biases and how people think about, uh, about what's fair and not, uh, not fair, and also just what people know. So they can lead to information asymmetries. And finally, some fascinating evidence from Tabellini and co-authors and, and others as well is, is the incentives of parents to inculcate uh, different kinds of norms to their to their kids. So if the parents are in a situation of mistrust where they believe that everyone in the society is acting opportunistically, the rational response of that they should have when they raise their kids is to teach their kids that everyone is untrustworthy and to raise their kids in that way because otherwise their kids won't do well in, in that society. So this kind of uh, intergenerational transmission of norms can also lead to persistent to persistent low trust 
from uh, originating from sort of terrible or traumatic historical events. So these are sort of some suspicions that are out there that we need to keep working on. Um, but uh, and and some of these stories seem to resonate in the Latin American context uh, especially well. But there's no systematic evidence that says low trust in, in Latin America can can systematically and completely be linked to these historical uh, events. But what's nice about all these frameworks and the way we're setting up, what we think is nice, is that it tells us that we can't be independently talking about trust in government on the one hand or interpersonal trust on the other hand. There's a lot of literature on one. There's a lot of literature on the other. And what we're arguing is that these are intimately related uh, and we can't uh, separate one from the other. So the first the first thing I want to talk about is the first arrow, the, go, the direct arrow from trust to growth. So now we'll just enter into all a lot more empirical evidence that we've put together for the book. Um, why? It's a nice, nice illustrations about how we think trust affects transactions. So if you look at the left-hand side, uh, the two pictures on the left-hand side, you see a fruit stand, and that fruit stand has fruit available for purchase, but there's no one there to take your money. The idea is you pull up to the side of the road, you take the fruit, and you and you leave the money. So that's clearly a high-trust environment. And in the second, you see a more public sector environment where people can just walk through the, the metro gates, the subway gates, and no one's checking. They just walk through. Uh, and that, again, is sort of a high-trust environment where people rely on you to pay your, your metro fare. And on the right-hand side, you see a couple of pictures from Latin America. Uh, and the one on top is quite interesting. These are very low value products. I think there's cheese or potato chips and um, these are low value products, but the fear of shoplifting is so great that each is enclosed in its own individual packaging that will set off an alarm if the, if the product is taken uh, outside the store. So that's a much more costly way to sell your products than the fruit stand on the, on the other side. So it's no surprise when you see pictures like that, that there's a very strong uh, correlation, well, a pretty strong correlation between trust and income. So if you think of income as the result of long-term growth over a long period of time, so today's income is the product of growth for the last 100 years, um, that's, you can think of this as the, showing the relationship between trust and long-term growth. And what we see is more trust, faster long-term growth. And what we also see is that the region, the Latin American Caribbean region, is concentrated in the wrong quartile. So it's, uh, it's our, our area of the quadrant of the graph. It's concentrated in the low growth, low trust quadrant of the graph. And that's going to happen over and over again. It's going to be in, the law, in, in sort of the unfortunate quadrant of many of these graphs. So that's the big sort of cross-country evidence that says trust is related to income. But we, what we wanted to do was go further in the book and dig down into the sort of guts of trust and transactions and how firms operate. So we surveyed 3,000 firms, around 3,000 firms that are registered on the Connect Americas platform of the IDB. This is a platform that tries to link um, firms in the region, in Latin America and the Caribbean region, to potential customers or, or customers or buyers in the uh, in the in the rest of the world, so we sent them uh, uh, some a survey, sort of email survey, and and we got three thousand responses back. And the first and what we asked in the survey, which was directed at the the, the head of the firm or the owner of the firm, these weren't huge firms, uh, a lot of small ones, some medium. Uh, we asked them first, how much do you trust other people? We asked them the standard trust question, and then we asked some things about their business practices, how they organize their firm. 
we gave them a list of five tasks that firms uh, often delegate, ranging from you know hiring somebody or uh, how you manage petty cash, sort of five tasks. And we asked, and these could be sensitive. Uh, so, so an owner of the firm may or may not decide to delegate the task. We wanted to know, so do you delegate these tasks? And we asked, first, do you delegate? And the second, we asked, if you delegate, do you delegate to family members or non-family members? And this is a key distinction. And what we see is a huge correlation uh, between the willingness to delegate to family members and answers to the trust question. The more trusting managers and owners were much more willing to delegate to non-family members. This has big implications for how firms grow. Because unless you're gifted with 1,000 very talented nephews, if you're restricted in your hiring practices to focusing on family members, the size of your firm and the efficiency of your firm is necessarily restricted. So we view delegation and we view trust as key to the growth of efficient and, uh, well, to, to the emergence of fast growing and efficient firms. We also ask them, how do you, how do you write contracts with your, main, you know, with your main customer? Do you write contracts that are really easy? Like you just agree over the phone? Yeah, we'll do it. Do you put it in paper in a very informal way, maybe an email? Do you write a formal contract that's you know, formal, but you know, straightforward? Or do you write complex contracts where you try to elaborately identify all possible contingencies and assign responsibility in the event of every contingency to the respective party? And we found that the high trust guys are much more likely to write simple contracts and the low trust guys are much more likely to write uh, more complicated contracts. And if you think of the cost of contracts as rising with complexity, for example, you have to hire a lawyer, you can see once again that trust is connected to factors that affect the speed of growth, the cost of production, um, and basically uh, growth, uh, inclusive growth altogether. So uh, colleagues, uh, uh, LSE colleague, uh, Machiavello and his, and his co-authors have brought up a, another angle to look at this because, okay, say the institutions are bad and firms can't rely on courts to, to enforce their contracts. Well, they can use relational contracts. They can sort of use relational contracts to create a self-enforcing environment so that economic activity can persist even in an environment of mistrust. But what's the key characteristic of these relational contracts? And this is kind of brilliant work in which they show this. The key characteristic is they depend on future rents. So you need the, the potential loss of future rents to a relationship in order to discipline people in the current conduct of that, uh, of that relationship. So you're not going to renege on a contract today if that will cost you valuable rents into the future. Uh, but that means the greater is the environment, the greater is mistrust, the greater are the rents that you need. So that's number one. And number two, rents come from somewhere. And typically where they come from is high prices to consumers. So it's not an ideal situation if you have to have high rents because generally competitive markets drive rents down. So relational contracts may not be a good solution to the problem of mistrust. They simply are the solution that firms have to turn to when there's no other alternative. The low participation of Latin American and Caribbean firms in global value chains kind of manifests this. So a global value chain is basically firms are supplying and buying from each other in a chain of production that spans the globe. Uh, those kinds of contracts are hard to enforce in courts. You really need to depend on sort of relate, relational contracts and, and, and the value of rents. 
So you would expect less relational contracting, you expect less participation in global value chains when mistrust is really high. And that's what we see in the region where mistrust is high. We also see relatively low participation in global value chains. So that same exercise that we did in the private sector showing that trust affects the organization of firms inside firms, affects how firms organize themselves, should also apply to the public sector. I mean, the public sector is, in fact, a group of people who are supposed to come together to work efficiently to solve the collective action problems of citizens in the production of public goods, in the delivery of regulation and redistribution of income, et cetera. So we asked 2,500 current or former public officials who had participated in the regional policy dialogues of the IDB, we asked them uh, a bunch of trust questions and and questions about about their work. So in this case, we asked them, do you trust other people? But we also asked them, how much do you trust your colleagues and other public sector employees? And, And then we asked them, so how important is collaboration with other employees? How important is collaboration to your work? And how important is information sharing to your work? And what we found is that in countries where people trusted their coworkers and other public employees in general, collaboration was much more important to their work. And so also was information sharing. And why is that important? It's important because it's hard to imagine the efficient provision of public goods, the efficient design of regulation, the accurate redistribution of income to the poor, from the rich to the poor. It's hard to imagine all of that happening in a public sector where people don't trust each other, where they don't collaborate, and where they don't share information. And as evidence of that, we sort of link those averages of of trust in in other public employees to other indicators of the quality of innovation in a a country, in a government, and the quality of regulation. So the left-hand side graph tells us something about innovation, because it's the the extent of e-government development, sort of digital government development in countries. So that's going to require collaboration and trust and information sharing. It's hard to imagine introducing e-government, digital government, without those elements being present. And And what we observe is, in fact, high trust countries are also more advanced with respect to e-government. And we say the same on regulation. The quality of regulation is higher in the presence of, uh, in, in those countries where public sector officials have higher levels of trust in each other. So now let me turn to the indirect path through which trust influences inclusive growth. So the argument that, that, atomized citizens have a hard time getting, you know, uh, acting collectively and holding government accountable is not new. There's a a famous philosopher who toured the United States in the early 19th century named Alexis de Tocqueville, and he made this point. Uh, And Robert Putnam made the point very strongly again in the late 20th century. If atomized citizens, citizens who are separate from each other, who do not come together, they can't demand better policies. They can't come together to vote for better for better policies, for better candidates, and they can't hold governments accountable for failure, you know, for just bad policies or for rent-seeking and corruption. But nothing will atomize citizens more than distrust. So mistrust we view as a key atomizing factor that interferes with the social capital development that Putnam was talking about and interferes with the self-government that de Tocqueville talked about. And there's quite a bit of evidence in the region that links mistrust and, and the inability to act collectively 
to, to outcomes that we observe. So let me give you a few examples. One is a cute study, quite, it's cute and also, um, and, well, it's, it, this is a cute one, and the rest of the uh, examples are much more linked to big time public policy issues. So some scholars took uh, a lot of wallets uh, with money in them, and they went to the major cities of about 20 or 30 countries. You can see the number of dots on the graph. And they spread those empty wa the, those wallets around in, in the main capital. And they asked themselves, and they found out, how many of those wallets were returned? So in the high-trust countries, many more wallets were returned than in the low-trust countries. And the low-trust countries, unfortunately, include disproportionately the five Latin American countries that were included in this study. But more, more pressingly, especially in a region where insecurity and crime are, are, are big concerns of many of the countries, is, uh, is, this, is this account. So it's, it's very difficult for police in any country to address crime, to design anti-crime strategies if they don't have any information about what crime happens. Uh, and the main way in which they find out if crime happens is if people report it. So what is it, what would cause differences in reporting of crime across countries? Well, one is you don't believe the police can do anything about it. So you're not going to go to the police to ask them to solve your problem. But another is this fact. By going to the police and having them help you solve your problem that you've experienced, you're also doing a public service because you're giving police information about a crime that's going to help them to prevent that crime in the future and therefore helping other people in the society. So if you're disinterested or mistrustful of others in your society, that motivation is also going to be weaker. So you're not going to go report a crime if you mistrust other people because you don't think they're going to do the same for you. And so what we see when we ask people in crime victimization surveys across many of the countries of the region, we ask first, did you report the crime? But we also asked, or, or the scholars did, how much do you trust other people? So the low trust people were much less likely to report the crime. So this has big implications for the efficacy of, of public safety, uh, public, uh, public policies that deal with public safety. Informality is another uh, huge concern of the region. Uh, it has the highest rates of informality in the world, yeah, and certain countries extremely high, like Peru. Um, and, and so, again, you can see informality in two different ways. One way you might see informality is it's the result of sort of firms not abiding by terribly inefficient and onerous regulations that have emerged out of, um, out of rent-seeking or out of carelessness or incompetence. And, uh, what, and that's relevant to trust through the indirect route. Because what kind of society will, will yield poor quality regulations that lead firms to go into the informal sector? Well, those would be societies where citizens cannot act collectively because they don't trust each other to demand better regulations. But also there's a direct route from trust to, um, to informality. If you think, if you don't trust anybody else to abide by the norms that society has set, then why should you abide by those norms? So you're informal because you expect that everyone else is going to be informal as well. So that those two influences show up strongly in the data. More informal, greater informality is strongly associated with lower trust. And this is a big uh, addition to the usual um, the usual stories that Ulisea, I think is also a, 
not a not necessarily LSE colleague, but I think a, a London colleague at any rate, he has a nice review of informality where the, he focuses and shows the literature focuses on weak enforcement and inefficient regulation. And what we argue is that we that the trust is clearly relevant. Finally, if you remember that this um, this indirect route includes weak citizen demand for public goods and institutions because they don't trust each other. So they're not going to be pushing government for, for these public goods and, and for strong institutions. So we have evidence of this. We surveyed about 8,000 Latin Americans in about seven countries. And we asked them first, do you trust other people as usual? But then we asked, we asked them uh, to choose between two policy options, one, policy, one set of policy options in education and one set of policy options in public safety and policing. So in both cases, we said, do you, which do you prefer? A public policy which sends more money to educate to the public provision of education or to police, or a public policy that just puts money in households' pockets so that they can procure those services for themselves. And what we found is the low trust respondents say, give us the money. The high trust respondents say, please let the, the government do it for us. We would like government-provided policing, and we would like government-provided education. The final example, I'm not sure if I said the last one was the final example, but this one is the final example, is the um, is climate change. So there's no greater collective action problem confronting humanity than climate change, because basically if all of humanity does not cooperate to, uh, to, reduce, climate, to reduce emissions and adapt to climate change, we have a big problem. So at the global level, the, the collective action problems are well understood and we're living through them every day. But these also persist at a local level because some climate change has local effects and, uh, or, or some sources of climate change have local effects, such as pollution um, so, or air pollution. So one, one city that's notorious for air pollution in the region is, is Mexico City. And uh, what we did was run a survey, a survey experiment in Mexico City, or not just a survey. And, and the question was, do you support a tax to improve air quality in Mexico City? That was the question. And it's salient for people because air pollution is bad. But then we asked them as well, how much do you trust the president of Mexico? And how much do you trust the uh, chief of government of Mexico City? And those people who said they trust the, the authorities were far more willing to support the tax than the people who said they didn't trust the authorities. They were very unwilling to support the tax. And that makes perfect sense because if you don't trust the authorities, then you're not going to trust them to collect the tax or you're not going to trust them to use the tax for the purposes for which it was intended. So that's kind of a, um, a grim, uh, grim picture uh, because these are kind of deep-seated problems with, deep -seated, with, with far-reaching consequences, these problems of trust and mistrust. Um, so the question is, what can we do about it? And we think uh, it is difficult, but then it occurred to us that these two pillars provide guidance to policymakers, the pillars of information asymmetry and power asymmetry, because governments have within their reach the capacity to, to, to if not eliminate totally, to soften information asymmetries and also to um, avoid or mitigate power asymmetries. On the one hand, we see many reforms that inform governments have undertaken already. And also we know that the, we, can, we can view the institutional reform agenda, which, which international development agencies and, and countries have been thinking about for decades. We can think of that institutional reform agenda as aimed uh, at solving power asymmetries, as putting everyone on a, a level playing field. And I'll show you how that might work. With respect to information, 
it's it, it's impossible for governments to make promises or for candidates to make promises that they will do certain things if there's no information about those things that citizens can look at. So it's hard to promise to improve education, for example, if nobody has information about test scores in, in schools. It's hard to promise to improve healthcare if nobody has information about mortality rates in hospitals. It's hard to, improve, to promise to improve crime if people can't know how the crime is in their neighborhood compared to other neighborhoods. And it's hard to improve the quality of um, sort of governance overall but in, in decentralized countries if no one knows the performance of subnational governments. So it's essential if governments are going to do what we think is really important, which is to make promises communicate those promises, keep the promises, and, and communicate that they've kept those promises, it's essential that there be basic information about government performance out there. So that's, um, so that's key. And what's the evidence that, that could be key? Well, here's um, the Carlos did a study in Buenos Aires. Uh, the mayor of Buenos Aires uh, at that time had, as he took office, he said, he put up a website in which he said, here's 50 things that I'm going to get done. And this is examples of how specific he was. 1,000 more police officers on the street, 12 sports centers, 20,000 families would become homeowners. This is quite uh, monitorable information. And then as in the course of his, uh, of his mandate, he informed people about which, uh, where, they, where these promises stood. So Carlos did a survey experiment in which he gave some people information about promises that had been fulfilled and other people information about promises that had not quite been fulfilled. And there's a huge difference in evaluations of the mayor of the government of Buenos Aires, depending on which information they got. So this isn't telling us what we really need to know, which is, does an information setup like this just generally build trust? But it does tell us that the information makes a difference because the ones who got the good information were far more likely to trust the government than the ones who got the bad information. They were also far more likely to say the government was competent, benevolent, honest, um, and that they had confidence in it. So what about the power asymmetries? So it's, I think there's a lot of evidence, and we just I, I've just touched on the tip of the iceberg, basically, of the evidence about information uh, and its, its power to, to change outcomes. But the but the other, the other half of the equation, the second pillar, relates to power asymmetries. What can we do about those? So as international agencies, not a huge amount until you think about it a little more. So, so what we know in, the, uh, in general, in the cross-country evidence, is that measures of rule of law, so think of the rule of law as sort of the equal application of law uh, towards all. So there's, it's kind of a level playing field and it's predictable and no one's surprised and no one's treated unfairly. That would kind of be a rough and ready definition of the rule of law. Uh, and the rule of law is much higher in high trust countries and lower in low trust countries. And again, we see the problematic quadrant uh, in, in this graph. That's great. But every time you talk about the rule of law with anybody, uh, including the people who write the most about it, you say, okay, what do we do about it? How do you fix the rule of law? Okay, so that's very hard. But then you think about the specific things that we often do, uh, the specific reform efforts that governments often undertake, and you realize those are linked to the rule of law, but nobody really talks about it. So let's think about tax administration reform, which is a big issue in, in Latin America and the Caribbean. We usually think about that as solving a problem of tax collection. So you have countries that are are undertaking fiscally unsustainable policies. They need to restore their fiscal sustainability and avoid tremendous volatility. And one way to do that is to improve tax administration and cut down on evasion. So clearly that is an important motivation 
to do tax administration reform. But you can think of tax administration reform as serving another objective, because what does it usually consist of? It consists of making sure that everyone adheres to their obligations under the tax laws. So it, I, it, it really is about the even, just, transparent application of the, tra- of the tax law to everyone who is subject to it. So there's no special treatment of, of anyone. In that sense, it's directly improving the rule of law. It, and it's also directly increasing feelings of citizenship because now people can trust that other people will contribute to their, their fair share to the provision of public goods and strong institutions. Another example of things we do all the time, but we don't think of their broader, bigger consequences is the nuts and bolts of public sector reform. So typically um, governments, uh, uh, a candidate will say, I promise to improve all of these outcomes. And then the candidate gets into office and, and encounters a public sector that's kind of dysfunctional. He can't use the public sector. He can't turn it on to make it do what he promised. So it's very hard to fulfill his promises. Why can't it do what he promised? Probably because the financial management systems inside the public sector are not informative. Uh, the, the human resources institutions inside the public sector do not attract the right people and don't encourage them to do the right things, just for example. So when we think about, typically, historically, when we think about reforming financial management in the public sector or human resources, which are really kind of very dry, dry themes, um, uh, we usually think of them as improving efficiency. We want value for money, but they have another fundamental role, which is to enable politicians, governments to fulfill their promises. So with that, I hope to leave you on a slightly more, more positive and upbeat note that there, there are big problems with trust, not just in Latin America, in the whole world. Uh, these trickle down into every aspect of the way firms work, the way public sectors work, the way organizations work, but there are responses. Uh, some of them are not new, and some of them are, uh, and they may not attack the whole problem, but they seem to be a very productive way to chip away at mistrust and really eventually build social cohesion and accelerate growth in Latin America, the Caribbean, and hopefully the world. So with that, thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you so much, Phil. That was very, very interesting. And now I'm going to turn first to Aaron and then to Aldo for a discussion. Um, Aaron, the floor is yours. So I'm going to drill down on many of the themes that Phil just talked about uh, with one country example in particular, and that's Colombia. So first of all, I'd like to thank the event staff for for putting all of this together. There was quite a lot of behind the scenes work and also the Department of International Development and my home at LSE, the Latin American Caribbean Center. So the proposition that I'm making here today is, is pretty straightforward. Um, by examining the micro processes of everyday interactions, we can better understand how these dynamics play out at a systems level. So as Phil noted, trust is indeed the sine qua non of many stabilization, security, and development goals. And yet most of the interventions that are in place almost entirely overlook this as part of their design. So I will trace here the ways in which interpersonal trust shapes individuals' relationships to one another, their work, and officials from other organizations in interinstitutional collaborations in particular that involve international development agencies and public sector institutions. So this is not a linear causal argument, but rather one of overlapping echoes, constellations of forces, and uncertainties. So the prospect of building trust after betrayals experienced in the context of war and other forms of organized violence is messy. And I'm not saying that I'm going to neatly order it here. 
But instead, I suggest that understanding the dynamics underlying this messiness can offer substantive inroads into program and policy changes that actually can foster trust building, which in turn can increase social cohesion and meaningful engagement in just democratic processes. So I'm drawing here from 10 years of working in development interventions in contexts of organized violence, and in particular from the four years that I spent in the field in Colombia. I'm focusing on one kind of institutional arrangement, uh, which I mentioned that has become nearly ubiquitous in these settings, which is the inter-institutional collaboration. An IIC, according to the literature, is a multi-institutional arrangement with mechanisms for coordinating and solving complex problems that cannot be solved by a single organization. It represents the creation of interdependence among institutions to exchange knowledge and technologies and deliberatively and collaboratively act, produce, and serve their beneficiary populations. Relationships within the, the, organ, or the arrangement are intended to be bidirectional, active, and to employ a fluid dialogue process. They can be both vertical and horizontal in nature and employ a broad range of actors. So I've selected these arrangements because they serve both as a microcosm of broader social dynamics in Colombia uh, related to social cohesion and because many critical actors for democratic processes convene in this domain. These arrangements would fall under what Phil and his colleagues refer to as the indirect pathways and opportunities for building trust. So the working definition that I'm using, which is based on the references that you see at the bottom of the screen for social cohesion is the following. So it's a phenomenon that correlates with socioeconomic transformation and equality and refers to social relations that result in horizontal, so interpersonal and group and vertical citizens in the state membership to societal subgroups where that membership is mediated by degrees of trust. So mistrust in Latin America has deep roots, uh, as this quote by author Luis Noriega might suggest, in which he says that a man must, quote, assume the consequences of having made the mistake to decide to trust. And the title of this novel is appropriately Reasons to Mistrust Your Neighbors. So as Phil showed, uh, Latin America in particular struggles with trust. And within that, Colombia also ranks uh, dramatically high or low uh, on the list, according to the LAPOP survey in recent years. Mistrust emerges between institutions and actors, in part because of a perceived need to compete for limited resources. But it also builds on long, contextually embedded histories of betrayal and magnifies the challenges presented to developing and implementing comprehensive public policy initiatives. So factors that can contribute to mistrust include corruption, highly fluid and unstable political context, and rapid shifts in public policy priorities. The work of international development agencies generally bears descriptors of, quote, institutional strengthening and technical support, but officials implicitly recognize that these are not the affect-free, apolitical propositions that their names might suggest. Mistrust among, among institutional counterparts can stem from a variety of cultural, historical, interpersonal, and interinstitutional dynamics. Highly fluid political contexts and their subsequent shifting priorities can generate a great deal of uncertainty among technical committees and on-the-ground implementers involved in the operations. Taken together, what emerges is a climate in which officials prefer to work alone than to have their ideas or interests potentially stolen from them. Little to no communication occurs among agencies with related mandates, 
And as Phil noted, information and power asymmetries persist and feed into cycles of mistrust. These coordination challenges only amplify outside of the metropolitan centers of the country. Acute mistrust manifests as a perception of collaboration as a significant professional, personal, and institutional risk. Understanding that may be viewed as such can help with assessments and strategies for trust building. So quickly in sum, resource scarcity does play a role, but it is not the determining factor of mistrust in IICs in Latin American contexts. IICs do require trust to function, and this functioning is necessary to achieve complex missions and mandates. Successful implementation of these missions and mandates can foster citizen state and trust in the state, social cohesion, democratic processes, and protections. And consistent with Phil and his colleagues' findings, long histories of interpersonal mistrust, transmission of practices and affects that reproduce mistrust, and uncertain and risky political and socioeconomic climates amplify standard challenges to interinstitutional collaborations. So I wanted to offer a few very specific um, policy and program recommendations. So trust building even from scratch, let alone after perceptions of wrongdoing or experiences of betrayal is a long and arduous process, especially against the backdrop of violent oppression profound inequality and failing protection of uh, failing to protect social leaders, but it is nonetheless possible. These recommendations are intended to contribute to that effort and strengthen social cohesion, both horizontally, so among IIC partners, and also vertically throughout the organizational hierarchy, between institutions and citizens, and between metropolitan centers and those areas outside of them. At the programmatic level, I recommend pilot projects specifically intended to improve the collaborative capacity and climate of trust in IIC arrangements. For example, collectively developing a leadership training module for collaborators that can be institutionalized after project completion, or working with institutional counterparts to design performance evaluation processes that create professional incentives for collaboration. Adapt pilot initiatives to the context and stakeholder needs and measure impact both quantitatively and qualitatively. For example, assessing cost savings, increased donor support and interest, interpersonal trust narratives and conflict management capabilities. On the topic of promises, which Phil also raised, leaders should emphasize the fact that fulfilling commitments is primordial and lead by example. The importance of completing milestones cannot be overstated, especially in a context like Colombia and many of the countries that Phil mentioned in Latin America. Collaborative work can contribute to build, when done right, can contribute to building a culture of cumplimiento or compliance in the public sector more broadly. In all of this, it is critical to acknowledge the fact that well-functioning IICs occur by design. Convening the right people to the table is necessary, but it is entirely insufficient. Strong collaborative relationships tend to bear, among other things, the following qualities. So mutual recognition of the value of participants' experiences and expertise, a low perceived threat by others, sufficient financial and technical resources, patience, persistence and flexibility, discretion with managing sensitive information, positive collaboration histories, and trustworthiness. Those who have had poor experiences with IICs in the past may require extra support, or they may simply be individuals who are just not disposed towards collaborative work. So do be intentional about the people that you select for IIC engagement when the time comes. 
the logic behind these recommendations is that these actors have both in their own lives and more importantly, with the everyday citizens that they encounter in their work, the opportunity to change cultures in terms of interpersonal trust and trust in the state. Institutional actors may lay each stone in the pathway forward, but it is the citizens and their families and their communities who are the binding agents that will or will not hold them together. So in line with Phil and his colleagues' findings, I'm arguing that interpersonal trust and trust in institutions are inextricably intertwined. So these are just obviously a few thoughts of a much larger conversation. Um, I'd like to thank you for your time today and, and look forward to the Q&A. Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Excellent. Thank you, Erin. And now I'll hand over to Aldo Madariaga. Yeah, thanks a lot, uh, Jean-Paul. Uh, and thanks, everyone uh, involved in the organization of this very interesting event. Thank Erin. And thank you, Philip, for a very interesting presentation as well. Um, I'm going to make a few comments on, on the presentation of Philip and also relate to um, one specific case study, which is um, Chile and the recent experience of this country. Uh, many of you, uh, Philip had, had a picture of it, uh, of the social unrest of, of a few years ago, and, and many of you uh, may be aware of the process uh, that has been ongoing since then of, um, you know, uh, reforms and, and political uh, renewing political institutions through what is now a constitutional assembly. Um, so I will draw a few examples from this to, to illustrate some of the points that I will comment on, on Phil's uh, presentation. Uh, first of all, I would like to say, Philip, I am really uh, glad that to hear you, uh, your presentation and about this work. I think this is really excellent work. Um, the fact that an institution uh, like the IDB is talking about uh, economic development related to trust and social cohesion is a huge step forward in, in, in our ability to understand what really is driving uh, economic development. And, and also, you also mentioned, and I'm happy about this too, uh, political stability. So the close relationship between economic development and political stability, and also underneath that, the, the, the importance of these social, social variables or social factors that sometimes we forget, right? But they're there, we see them every day. We can talk about it with many different uh, personal experiences, uh, but many times we forget when, when we're uh, trying to understand these things. So I really like the, the, the focus and, and, and you provide many examples and good data to, to um, support um, your, your, your vision and your recommendations. Um, I'm going to give uh, mostly two uh, uh, critical remarks, comments, questions, so that we can uh, foster a dialogue and, and, and think a, a little bit further uh, where this uh, is heading. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind to me is um, you're talking about trust, particularly centered around norms, rules, and, and promises, right? Um, but 
I was thinking what happens when you, you, you were saying, you know, you need policies, you need new institutions to build that the, the type of trust that we, that we need for to foster uh, um, uh, development. Uh, but what happens when you already lost trust in institutions or regulations more generally? So it's actually, uh, it's, it's kind of deceptive if you're going to put um, uh, new reforms or propose new institutions when people already don't trust institutions in general. So what happens there? And I think you need to think more about collective action then uh, and how different groups in society uh, are trying to express themselves and express their sort of lack of trust in different ways. Uh, and, and when thinking about collective action, I really think that uh, you have a prisoner's, prisoner's dilemma there, right? Uh, if you think about um, um, these this instances of um, mobilization that we have seen throughout the region in the past couple of years, you see uh, a, a huge uh, amount of masses of, of citizens protesting and trying to, um, you know, for different things, but demanding uh, social policies, demanding different types of things. And then an elite that you would say uh, is, is capable of, in a way, uh, providing different types of things, a political elite, an economic elite, uh, if you think about taxation, if you think about different types of policies. Uh, and and the, the question is who gives in first, right? Who, if the citizens stop demanding or, you know, stop going to the streets to protest and, and have a little bit of patience, uh, or it is the elites who start saying, uh, look, we will allow uh, higher taxation or governments, we will allow anyways, uh, uh, political reforms or whatever. And I really think that the role of elites is, is key here. And, and I, don't, I don't see that um, uh, with, with that um, importance in, the, in, in what you presented. Um, and elites are there not just because they have been successful in, in uh, retaining uh, or, you know, um, uh, in, 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 in arriving to political positions of political power or, or of uh, economic power by, by way of their own merits, but there's a, a lot of, we know, discrimination going on, uh, in social discrimination, cultural discrimination, political discrimination that makes these elites, elites and, and, and allows them to retain this, this position in time. Um, so I, re I, I think that we have to think about this role of the elites in maintaining these uh, institutions in time, the institutions that uh, erode trust and that make uh, the rest of the population, you know, don't uh, even uh, trust uh, the solutions that are proposed, okay? Um, so this is a one sort of general comment. And the second that, that, that comes to mind and, and, and is related to the, to the latter is um, that the focus of, of, your, of your approach on trust is very much into, uh, uh, comes from economics, institutional economics, that, uh, that is a very specific perspective on institutions and, and trust, right? And you talk about trust in terms of uh, rational actors and, and incentives, and I think that's part of the story. But I think that misses uh, an important part of the story, which comes from other disciplines like sociology or political science. And I think much of what, what, what you see with, with trust and social cohesion has to do with perceptions and emotions. Uh, for example, in Chile, uh, mistrust 
has to do with this type of discriminations that I was talking about. And, and, and not just the, uh, mistrust with people that earn more because they, they earn more, you know, and they are in a higher position in society, but because they treat them in a bad way. You know, it's this inequality of treatment and, and the idea of dignity that has come forward in, in, in the protest in Chile, which is a very vague word for, you know, for uh, producing collective action and, and, and making people protest, but it's what makes people feel, uh, uh, you know, that they, that they need more, that they need to demand things, and, and what produces the type of collective action uh, response. Uh, so we need to think about perceptions and emotions, and we also need to think about legitimacy. Right. So one thing is what is legal and one another thing is what is legitimate. Right. And, and I think uh, many times all of this relates also to the question, the, the key question of inequality in the region that I that I didn't see in the presentation. And I think it's really key when it comes to understand not just the consequences of mistrust or low trust, but also the causes of low trust. And I really think this is the key thing uh, to understand how inequality is translated into lower trust in our societies uh, and the different manifestations of inequality, which is, again, not just an economic phenomenon, but as a deeply sociological uh, phenomenon rooted in everyday experiences of, of citizens. Um, uh, finally, I am very happy again that the IDB and, and, and the LSE are talking about these issues because they are uh, organizations where many of the elites of, of, of our uh, region are, uh, are trained, you know, are, are socialized, and I really think that you are doing a great job um, putting these topics forward and, and making us think more deeply into how this is related to uh, trust is related to economic growth and uh, development. Thank you. Excellent. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so I want to open it up for questions. I don't think we have that many yet. So I'm going to abuse a little bit my, um, my role as chair and, and kick off while the questions come in. Um, and so I, I wanted to, to pick up on a couple of things that both the discussants said and, and ask Phil to come back to the the. the, the the, the huge question of what do we do about trust if we're targeting trust directly? So I think your presentation and the book do a very nice job of tying trust into important economic and political outcomes that we care about. Um, but as, as you know, social scientists tend to take trust um, and other sorts of, we can call them cultural attributes as givens. We're not very good at, at unpicking culture or unpicking trust and figuring out where it comes from. So we, we have some societies that are characterized by higher trust and other societies that are characterized by lower trust. You mentioned Putnam. Bob Putnam's first famous book about Italy went back 800 years in, into the mist of time to try to discover why trust and social capital were higher in the North and lower in the South. And he said he just lost the thread. He just lost the, the path in the mists of time. Um, so if we're gonna try to, you know, is it religion, is it ethnicity? Um, is it inequality, as Aldo just mentioned? Is it history? If we're going to try to do something to improve trust in society, to then get some of those improved economic and, and political outcomes, how do we do that? I, you, you mentioned something about that, but if I could ask you to develop it a bit further, Phil. 
Great. I, I thought you were going to ask two questions, and that was only the first, and I was kind of afraid. So it's merely that question. So I think that does link up with what Aaron and Aldo were talking about. I mean, Aaron had these, but but I think Aaron sort of had ideas that were similar uh, in spirit to the things I was talking about. So it's sort of like saying uh, it's hard to fix trust broadly. Um, it's just too big, but you can do through basic blocking and tackling using American football expressions. You can begin to, to deal with it in, in particular contexts. And so she had a very n- nice way to talk about building trust in this particular IIC context. And I think I was talking about building trust uh, on the institutional side, the power side, through just doing more of what we've been doing, but doing it with greater consciousness that it has multiple objectives, tax administration reform or public sector reform, they have multiple objectives, not just efficiency or tax collection, but building confidence of citizens in, in the way they're going to be treated by government. Uh, and then on the information side, sort of similar, uh, but um, again, Context, context specific. But Aldo points out that, and you point out that it's a big problem. Uh, and so on the one hand, there's history driving sort of countrywide generational mistrust. And on the other, mistrust has um, is, is not just about the formal ways that society operates. Uh, you can have pretty destructive social norms. So one social norm says elite can treat the elites treat people badly or the elites treat people well. That's sort of a, there's sort of a social norm there. And no, there's definitely a social norm there. Uh, and we don't see that only with elites versus non-elites, but we've seen it notoriously in many other settings. Um, racial inequality is, is clearly linked to, um, to social norms and changes in racial inequality and the treatment of um, minority groups is linked to changes in those social norms, often state-led actually, but um, the same with gender uh, gender inequality, same idea that there's there's social norms that that um, that are lie behind a lot of these things and those are hard to change. And they can be, um, and what's even worse and more interesting, or interesting and worse, is that those norms may not even reflect the preferences of people. So there's this famous recent study about men in Saudi Arabia. And it turns out when that individual men really hate gender inequality because it's a big pain in the neck for them. They have to take their wives out. They have to escort them everywhere. They'd rather just do away with it. They want gender equality. But they think that other men will look down on them if they say such things. That this is So the, the social norm is women must be controlled. But the preferences of the men seem to diverge from the norm. Okay, so I'm just, I found that a provocative example. I have no idea whether it has legs to other countries, other settings, whatever. But the point is, there's, um, there's a lot more going on than the tools available to international agencies. Uh, and there's a lot more going on in, in the problem of trust than, than trust in economic transactions or trust that uh, tax administration will be fair. There's more fundamental issues of dignity or, or social norms that, that are, that can also play a role. But I have to say um, uh, it usually starts with these, with these practical things I'm talking about. I mean, we begin to change racial, bad social norms regarding race in the United States by requiring that they be treated equally by public agencies. So that's sort of like treating everybody who owes taxes the same. It's just, so it's, it's, uh, that's, I mean, that's just sort of a, a, an uninformed example. So I still think the basics of blocking and tackling, of chipping away and, and looking for fair, predictable treatment uh, across the board is a way to begin to, 
to deal with social norms. So the elites in Chile, if they treat everybody like crap, if that you know, just to, to say if that's the if, if that's the way, uh, uh, if that's a that could be a poor way to characterize what, uh, what Aldo said. But let's say that's a that's a social norm. But if these elites constantly are confronting uh, public agencies that refuse to do that, that systematically say no, no, everybody's going to be precisely the same, then it becomes harder and harder to sustain that that social norm. Uh, Okay, so basically, I'm saying we have to do uh, we we have to focus on context and, and making progress some things at a time. It's probably very di- it's it's probably difficult to to think about changing trust all over the place uh, uh, all at once. There's no nobody has a good strategy for that. Okay, great, thank you. Uh, you probably- in case I mean, Aldo and Aaron may want to respond to my response. I don't know if I did violence to anything you guys said, then you should defend it. But I, I feel like, um, but I really appreciate those comments and, and the question. <laughs> yeah, no, no. The discussants in particular should jump in at any point when 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 you want to intervene. The, the, what you said now reminds me of this the book, The Spirit Level. You probably read, which argues a greater economic equi- greater economic equality, lower inequality, and and broader social equality is linked to all kinds of good outcomes, social outcomes. Um, epidemiological outcomes, longevity, um, productivity, productivity growth, GDP per capita, et cetera. Um, some of the highest trust societies that, that you didn't focus on, but that were in your graphs implicitly are the Northern European countries that also have very strong welfare states and a high level of redistribution and active labor market policies. It'd be curious to know historically, the, these welfare states were constructed, right? Largely in the 20th century. It'd be curious to know how trust, if trust led or lagged behind the generation of this, this sort of economic equality. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, there's a lot of complaints that people can raise about our book with respect to causality. I mean, in subsequent research, we're, you know, we're, we're finding more causal evidence about some of the things that I talked about. But I think the inequality, good outcomes thing, or bad outcomes uh, hypothesis, also has a little, a little bit of this issue. I mean, in a society where... There's a lot of homogeneity, for example. People are more likely to trust each other, but they're also more likely to be altruistic. Uh, so they're more likely to be willing to have a, uh, uh, to advocate a larger uh, redistribution of income because the income is going from people like me to people like me. Uh, and because the people are like me, I trust them more. So I, I think that's a, that's a nice equilibrium, but I, but I think the causality is intrinsically difficult to, to tease out. Okay. Aldo, I think, wants to come in. Yes, if, 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 if I may, um, just to, to comment on, on, on Phil's um, reply to my comments, I think the, this type of sort of uh, social norms are also very important in, in the context of firms and, 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 and that you were mentioning. I mean, for example, you were saying uh, firms may not, uh, may be informal because they, they don't believe in regulations or, you know, regulations are bad and therefore they, they jump over regulations, but they... They, they may also be informal because they don't want to, to give uh, contracts to their, to their workers because they, 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 they may feel they, they don't deserve them, right? Uh, in, in a very specific context, for example, uh, when it talks about housework, this is very common that, you know, people that hire housework, they just give crappy contracts to, to, their, to, the, to their workers because they, they feel they, they belong to a different social strata uh, or ethnic group. And, and therefore they shouldn't be given more, you know, and this then uh, uh, makes people uh, untrusty of their, of their employers because, you know, they, they think they're all, all the time they're trying to get away with things and, and don't give them the rights that they deserve. So 
in a way, I think this type of social inequality uh, and, and sort of deeper mistrust issues uh, are also very important in the, in the uh, context of, of the economy and, and, and in, in companies. And, and, and I really think that, that we should try to find a way to incorporate this type of, um, of, of, of factors into, into what you are, you're trying to um, study. Okay, thanks. Aaron, then I, I will go to some questions, but... I, I just want to say, um, I, I, think, I think that what you just said is absolutely valid and important. I, I guess I'm a little uncertain in my own head about where, uh, about where many of the problems of society, like the problems of inequality and sort of poor, uh, bad labor market opportunities for a large group of people, where those um, stop, where, where those overlap with mistrust. Because I think mistrust is not everything. <laughs> it's not every single social problem is not is not necessarily a, a trust problem, and every single trust problem is not necessarily all. Uh, so, um, so I, so in the in the in the situation you mentioned about housework, this may be just a straight out labor market problem, uh, or or there's some trust aspects. I don't know, but I think it's very interesting to to explore that. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep it very brief because I don't, it's a, a bit of a methodological thing, but I think that um, what I'm hearing too is a discussion about trust as sort of this thing out there in the world. And um, I would say, you know, thinking about how to solve problems around mistrust and how to continue to do research on mistrust. I mean, it is also, so, it's something that's produced, right? So thinking about both causal relationships, which is one sort of approach methodologically, and then maybe combining that also with considerations of things like the practices um, that reproduce mistrust. So, for example, you mentioned the intergenerational transmission of practices of mistrust. So I actually did um, a survey of, you know, people in Bogota, and I asked them who the first person was that told them not to trust anybody after they had told me that they had been told it was their mother. So, oh, wow. uh, so many people responded to me that, you know, uh, well, very almost verbatim that, uh, you know, my mother taught me never trust anybody, not even me. And so this is, so, I mean, this is from a very early age as well. So looking at those transmissive practices, right? Like how is mistrust and trust produced and reproduced um, as much as sort of the causal relationships of, let's say, uh, you know, trust in government related to percentage of completed public works project or something like that. But as, as complementary, I'm not saying one sort of outweighs the other, but that both should be included. Great, great. Thank you. So let me turn to some questions now. We've got a lot of good questions. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to start with Sophie Legros. It's a, a very difficult and, and big multifaceted question. She's a PhD student in our department in international development at the LSE. She says, thank you to the speakers. I'm wondering about causality and whether development and economic growth might cause greater trust. What in your study drove you to conclude that trust causes growth? Secondly, what is the relation between trust, social inequalities, and violence dynamics in Latin America? And lastly, does high inequality foster social mistrust between classes? So some, some little questions there, Phil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, those are, those are terrific questions, and they're definitely the natural questions. So let me just say on all of them, theory, um, Three, theory predicts bicausality, right? So theory predicts that mistrust is going to slow down economic growth because it makes economic transactions more costly. But theory also predicts that, so that, that um, but that's sort of mistrust among people uh, in particular. Theory also predicts that bad economic outcomes, whether growth like a recession or whether inequality, 
um, can also increase mistrust because individuals, and this time in government or just in general, in institutions, because in this case, people don't know what is the problem. They don't know why there's a recession and they don't know why they're low down on the economic scale. It could be because they didn't study hard enough at school, or it could be that um, the firm that they're working with had a bad time, but it could also be that governments pursued bad public policies that caused the recession. And it could be that uh, elites are discriminating against people like them and keeping them out of the job market. But when, because they don't have that information, they're going to assume the worst because that's the rational thing to do. I mean, I think it's the rational thing to do. It's what the moms in, Bo- in, in, in Colombia are doing. They're assuming the worst. And, and that will also increase mistrust, I think. So, uh, so when bad outcomes happen, you need to interpret the bad outcomes. And because you're not well informed about where they came from, the bad outcome leads you to mistrust more than you otherwise would have. Um, so I, I, think, uh, I think there's interesting ways to think about this in both directions. We don't really emphasize the, um, the economics to trust aspect. We mostly emphasize the trust to economics angle. But I think both directions are important. Aaron, you want to jump in? Yeah. Also, very briefly, um, I th- just to the p- hi Sophie, um, just to the point of violence. I think um, the relationship, in particular, of why violence matters in, let's say, studying these contexts versus other lower middle income countries that maybe aren't experiencing forms of violence as much, is the stakes. So the stakes of trust are are very high when you're talking about communities that have large concentrations of people who have been formally displaced by violent conflict, communities of people who know that there are large, a high density of former combatants that live among them, active militias. So the stakes are quite high um, for interpersonal trust in violent contexts in a way that they're not in others. So I think that's one, it's not to say there are no stakes, but um, I think that's one way that violence as a backdrop, organized violence as a backdrop is, is plays into the conversation about trust. Great, thank you. What a good uh, question. Uh, sorry about that. There's another violence question from Omar Dario Peña Nino. It's related to Sophie's question. Yeah, um, so yeah. Uh-huh. Is that all right? Because I, I mean, there's this idea of, um, sorry, I'm just looking at I'm not, I'm not looking over your shoulder, but I'm kind of looking over. <laughs> no, no, okay. I'm looking at it because I'm not sure everyone who, who's online can see it. So this oh, okay. is from Omar Pe- Peña Nino. Um, LSE visitor from Los Andes School of Management in Colombia. A question is for Phil. He says, at violent local levels, like Aaron mentioned in Colombia, how do we establish trust after the unfulfillment or betrayal from current national government, which may not fully have implemented the peace process? So, look, I can't speak about Colombia in particular, both out of not enough information and out of, like, where I work. So, the, <laughs> but the... Uh, <laughs> But, but there's this general issue that, uh, what's the general problem that, that we're worried about? We're worried about ungoverned spaces, you know, where bad actors can sort of take over. And one, one way that bad actors can take over is by sort of supplementing government. They, can, they, either, they either don't confront organized resistance to their activities, which is normally like police or something like that, because the state is empty. And they, they can also increase their attractiveness to locals by... Um, by doing stuff or by coercion, whatever. But sometimes it's not just coercion, it's also we can solve some of your problems. Uh, and so the big problem Colombia has been facing, but many other countries as well, is how to govern ungoverned states. And, and, and so what's the interesting issue? So there was a, a very interesting study about 15 years ago or 20 years ago, which is in Iraq. So it has to do with the war in Iraq. And what they found was 
when U.S. troops provided stuff to Iraqis, like stuff, uh, local public works projects, something like that, in order to, to, to uh, uh, win hearts and minds is the idea. You win hearts and mean, minds, and then the locals will cooperate with you and tell you where the enemy is. So when the U.S. troops did it, they actually increased cooperation. They managed to get cooperation. When the Iraqi troops did it, they got nothing. And why is that? Because the Iraqi troops really were disorganized. They couldn't, they couldn't offer any sort of sustained cooperation, any sustained protection. And for some reason, the U.S. troops in this particular case were able to do that. So that's, that's the whole idea of building trust locally. You want to build trust locally so people don't turn to, other, um, to bad actors on the one hand. Uh, and you want to make it easy for people locally to sort of cooperate. So I don't think that's really answering the, these questions exactly, but it's... Uh, but I think it's putting the problem, putting the, the focus on exactly where the problem is. The focus of the, has, of the problem has to be on the local people whose, whose existences are precarious, who are vulnerable to, to bad actors, and how to strengthen their position vis-a-vis those bad actors and, and make it easier. And, and, okay, and that involves the state, surely involves the state making promises to protect them into the future. Otherwise, they have no reason to sort of provide information to the state about where the bad actors are just for starters. So, so it's keeping promises is really intrinsic to, to this kind of activity. Okay. We've got four more questions that I want to try to get to. I don't know if we will, but I'll try to get to in the last few minutes. Um, so here's one from Kamil Jonski from University of Lodz, Poland. How increasing polarization and illiberalism can affect trust and as a consequence society and growth prospects. So he says from evidence in the EU, Poland's a low trust society does this indicate that attitudes towards institutions that were once universally supported are, are becoming highly polarized along partisan lines? And is this sort of a, a broad problem beyond Poland? Yeah. So that's uh, my take on this. I mean, we're getting the polarization trust issue coming up everywhere. It comes up in the United States, comes up in Brazil, it comes up in uh, everywhere, the, in France. And, and my, my general, not very well educated or, or investigated take on this is that the causality is really the other way around, that, that low trust sort of breeds polarization. Uh, because if you think about low trust as being a product of, of powerlessness or a, po- or a product of bad information, either one, you can see how that would sort of lead to polarization because all of a sudden, so what is polarization? Like, when is it really bad? It's especially bad when people hear the same facts and draw contrary conclusions, or when poli- people see like facts and disregard them because they are incompatible with their, their worldview and see non-facts and say, well, those are facts because they're compatible with my worldview. So the less trust there is, the more likely you are to, to the more likely is information to be processed in that way. And that just breeds polarization. So that's my my general take. I, I don't think people naturally absorb false information for no reason. <laughs> I mean, they need to have, and I think mistrust is sort of the, at the base of the reason. And then, uh, you know, and then once polarization happens, other bad things happen too. So confidence in institutions fa- falls. I think maybe that, maybe that's related to the decline in support for the, the constitutional court in in uh, Poland. I have no idea about why confidence in the church might be falling, but that could be just a, a worldwide kind of phenomenon of de-religionization. Okay. Um, there are a couple of questions I want to combine because they're, they're, they're somewhat related. Um, Carlos Gonzalez Carrasco, professor at Ecosur Mexico and advisor to the Eco Constituyentes in Chile asks, 
how multidimensional financial, economic, social, religious, and institutional corruption carried out elite impact on the practices of historical impunity and abuses by the ruling elites. I think it's about relationships between impunity and ruling elite abuses and the, the, these sorts of bad phenomena. And then also Jaideep Saikia from India asks to Aaron, asks, do you feel that there's a trust deficit more within the political elite that eventually trickles down to the entire polity? And if so, how do you get around that? How do you short circuit that phenomenon? Whichever of you two would like to go first. Um, well, uh, huh. so, so impunity is uh, impunity is clearly bad for trust in government. So I, I, I just think it's it speaks for itself. And then the question, and then the but the deeper issue is why is there impunity? And I just somehow think it, it relates to the inability of of citizens to act collectively um, to insist on um, that everyone is held accountable under the law. Uh, and I think Aldo was also kind of talking about the, the importance of this collective action. And I and I guess my to sort of extend my earlier response on that, it's it's probably not enough just to be protesting in the streets because protests don't really build the organizational basis for sustained collective action. You really need something else, which is often political parties when they're kind of functioning well, could also be um you know, uh, non-governmental organizations, civil society organizations that that provide that organizational structure for sustained collective action that could, in this case, demand accountability and and, and criticize impunity. And then the, um, the the idea of a trust deficit among the political elite. This is actually a big issue, which we just touch on with a little bit of evidence in the book. When political elites do not trust each other, that makes it really hard to run public policy as well. So then you get all kinds of distortions with regard to like public goods. So a public good is something that all the elites and their constituents will enjoy. But if they don't trust each other, they're not going to go for public goods. They're going to go for other stuff um, and, and they'll do a lot more rent seeking. So it's quite uh, so. So I think trust within political elites is a is a huge issue uh, that that we need to pay more attention to. It's rarely the case that elites are a cohesive sort of monolithic block that acts with one mind. Um, and I think understanding that the trust effect, the effect of mistrust on atomizing the elites and the impact of that on, on everything is, is important to understand. Aaron, do you want to add something? Yes, so thank you for the question, Jaideep. Um, and I'll sort of complement what Phil said with a, an example. So I think in terms of um, trust in elites, I think there are actually practices of trust among the elites that can generate greater mistrust um, among marginalized populations. So, and I'm thinking of clientelism in particular. So clientelism is practiced, and I'm just, I'm just going to talk about Colombia right now, but clientelism is practiced in many countries, but in Colombia at all levels. So, you know, I've observed presidential appointments that were, you know, the, the primos, it's always the cousins, right? And then from, you know, peace uh, ministers at the governor's level who were previously criminal attorneys for the recently elected governors. So that had nothing to do with, they had no experience related to peace building to victims who were living in, you know, in, in Basion and in an informal housing settlement that had to call on their family members in order to be able to actually get the reparations that were due to them by the government because the family members worked in the government agency. So I think that the, in as much as you can say that clientelistic practices have a, a tight connection with trust, um, and they don't entirely, but I think that there's a big part of it that is, 
um, then or nepotism, clientelism and nepotism have, are based in some form of interpersonal trust. Um, those have outsized effects for mistrust uh, for, for more of the marginalized populations, of course, because they're not ignorant of what's happening at the highest levels of society uh, among the elite. So they see the way that governance is happening. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Aldo, I'm going to give you one last chance to have the last word if you'd like, and then it's, it's just gone past six. So I'm afraid there, there are three more questions that we're just not going to have time to get to. But Aldo, if you have anything final to say? Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you. I'm fine. I'm uh, Just thank you again for the great conversation, Phil, Erin, and Jean-Paul, and everybody, everybody who organized this. Thanks. Let me add to that. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank you, Aaron and Aldo. Thank you to, to everyone who is here. We had it at the beginning, more than 100 people online. Um, it's been fantastic. Thank you for a brilliant presentation, Phil. Um, and that's it from, from us. No, thanks a lot, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.